You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another in our series on race in America. This is the weekend when we as a nation celebrate the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But the civil rights work of that great man remains undone. His eldest son is using the holiday to focus attention on voting rights with action in Arizona tomorrow, the actual birthday of Dr. King, and then here in Washington on Monday, the holiday. Joining me now is Martin Luther King III, chairman of the Drum Major Institute. Mr. King, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, I appreciate having the opportunity today to share. And it's great to see you again. I just saw you, what, maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, on That's my right. MSNBC show. Yes. Well, yes. Let, let, let's talk about a tweet you put out just an hour ago. Um, you tweeted out, until our freedom to vote is secured, we don't see progress on the issues that matter most to us. Abortion access, gun violence prevention, economic equality, racial justice, climate change. President Biden and Congress do what's right and pass voting rights legislation, all caps, now, uh, I hear you, I agree with you. Millions of Americans hear you and agree with you. Why don't you think any action has been taken or will be taken on voting rights? You know, I, I, would, uh, I, would, I would first of all say that I was, uh, as many, greatly disappointed yesterday to hear Senator Sinema and later Senator Manchin uh, take uh, positions that appear to close the opportunity for something to be done. But what I'm perplexed by more than that is there are 50 Democrats, those two included, those are some of the 50, who do say they support the bills. Uh, I don't know how you can support the bills without stating you want a pathway to create a pathway for that to happen. And no one seems to be answering that question. Um, uh, and so uh, I don't know what I would say is, while I'm greatly disappointed, I'm even more engaged to be uh, charging forward as we go into Phoenix tomorrow or in, are in Phoenix tomorrow on the actual mm -hmm. birthday of dad. Uh, where we will be there with over 150 of our partners uh, that we're saying, look, we saw what happens when you do what you can do as the president and Congress with infrastructure, and we're going to be walking over a bridge. Now we need you to do the same thing uh, to protect, preserve democracy um, and for voting rights. Mm -hmm. And so it's a simple message. Um, we're going to be doing the same thing there in Washington, D.C. on um, Monday, the actual holiday. Now, what, I, what we've done with these partners, and, and I should say over a thousand ministers, uh, as well as all of the major labor unions, uh, maybe some senators are not listening. Uh, therefore, on the holiday, I would hope that we can get masses of people from around our nation on the King holiday, be engaged in a, in a simple action, calling their senators, tweeting their senators, 
um, texting their senators, emailing their senators, saying we want to see voting rights protected and preserved, and we need the federal government to weigh in. Mr. King, um, you were planning on being in Arizona uh, tomorrow, the actual birthday of your father, long before Senator Sinema um, did what she did yesterday. Why Arizona? Why not Georgia? Why not Texas? Why not any other state? Why Arizona? Well, our initial plan was to be in Arizona and always to be in D.C. Uh, we had thought about even coming to Atlanta, uh, but we decided uh, that we really needed the, the timing wouldn't allow us to do the three cities. Mm -hmm. So Arizona was always, uh, since legislation has already occurred in Arizona, just as legislation has occurred in Georgia, but also in addition to legislation, uh, there's been a, a, a court ruling as well. And when you look at the black and brown and most of all, the indigenous community that's there, mm -hmm. uh, there it's, it's, it's the right area to be. And finally, mm -hmm. because yeah. Senator Sinema is there, we mm -hmm. want her to know. And we all our constituents have got to have some level of influence on her. Maybe they haven't so far. But if it all comes to a head on the January 15th, I think that's very important. Mr. King, have you had a conversation with Senator Sinema about voting rights? No. We have requested um, to have conversations, and uh, up to now, we've not been able to have a conversation. So no conversation Senator, at all. Senator with, with, we have been in touch with. But Senator Sinema, we've not been able to secure a meeting. We have uh, attempted to on many occasions. Um, you know, some even told us that our own constituents have not been able to get meetings. I don't know that any of that is that part is true, but that's what we've heard. And what does it say to you that um, you haven't had a conversation with her, that you haven't been able to successfully engage in dialogue with her? Well, the main thing is just disappointment. But again, as I said in a, in a tweet yesterday, history is not gonna be judge, judging her uh, or maybe them. In, 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 in the way that perhaps they would want to be remembered. It's going to be, you know, history is looking at her and him dead in the face to say when it was time to make sure the democracy was preserved and saved, what did you do? Um, and um, that's, a, that's on her. Mm -hmm. You actually did. The, the Wall Street Journal reported yesterday that you said, quote, History will remember Senator Sinema unkindly. She's siding with the legacy of Bull Connor and George Wallace instead of the legacy of my father and all those who fought to make real our democracy. This tracks with what President Biden said in his speech in Atlanta on Tuesday. What did you think of the president's speech overall? Well, I thought that it was time. It, it was timely. I maybe would have um, liked to have seen it done earlier. But the fact that it is done now, and you know, I know he had the two of the senators uh, to the White House last night after they made their statements. And I, that's what I think has to keep going on, that kind of discussion over and over and over again until we get um, an affirmative decision on getting these bills done. Again, as I said, what's perplexing? is both senators say they support these bills. They have their names written on the bills. They just have not defined a mechanism or a method to get 
to them uh, based on some rules that have been modified on many occasions, modified to elect Supreme Court justices, modified uh, you know, to deal with budget issues, modified several times. So it would seem likely and probable. And those of us who understand, understand that this is the most critical issue, I believe, of our time. As I say, in terms of preserving democracy, democracy mm -hmm. is on the brink of being dismantled. We all know. And yet, uh, we are, there are senators who are who are standing in the way. And uh, I have, again, you know, my dad and his team and so many others, uh, it was always, there were always dark times that it felt like things were not going to change. But then something miraculously occurred. And that's almost where we are at this point. We must, we need something miraculous to occur to so, get so this Mr. legislation Mr. done. So, Mr. King, then, do you think, in terms of, you know, something miraculously happening, do you think that either of those senators can be convinced to change their mind? I mean, Senator Sinema is, and Senator Manchin, both out there saying, nope, not going to change the filibuster. Um, um, you haven't had a chance to talk to Senator Sinema, but you have had an opportunity, as you just said, to talk with Senator Manchin. In your conversations with him, whether it was one or many conversations with Senator Manchin, do you have the feeling or do you think he could be, he could change his mind? What I would say is, it is there's always an opportunity for people to change their minds. And there's nothing more powerful in all the world, as Victor Hugo often said, than an idea whose time has come. Uh, and so I, I would not ever just say, okay, conventional wisdom would say, okay, this is a done deal. It's just not going to happen. Well, there is going to be a vote. There is going to be a reckoning. And at that point, anything could happen. We've seen it occur in sports analogies from time to time. We've seen it all over the place. And my father and his team saw it over and over again when they thought, oh my gosh, we're just not going to get any relief. And all of a sudden, something happened. That's the spirit I have to come to this scenario with, even knowing that it looks like the door could be closed. It may look like that, but we will never give up. We will never give in and we will never give out. We have to continue to fight for these rights. And you know, I mean, you of all people know this, but you know, Taylor Branch in his trilogy um, on the on the civil rights movement, but the very first one, parting the waters. You everything that you're saying is outlined in detail in that book. That the highs and the lows, and at moments when um, your father and Reverend Abernathy and and a, a young John Lewis thought that you know this is it, this is the end. Something happened to propel things. One thing we haven't talked about is the silence among Republicans. And it's notable because in 2006, Senate Republicans, all of them joined with Senate Democrats, all of them to vote unanimously to reauthorize the Voting Rights, uh, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. President George W. Bush, Republican, not only signed it into law, but held an event on the South Lawn of the White House to dramatize the moment. 
Reverend Sharpton was here yesterday and he brought that up and also pointed out he was there invited by Karl Rove, the president's chief strategist, to be there in the front row. And yet today, 16 of those Republicans who were part of the folks who voted for the reauthorization in 2006 continue to serve in the Senate today and won't even give their votes to allow for the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to even get a debate. No one's asking for them to vote for the bill, just vote to allow for a debate. Why do you think the Republican Party has gone from being um, champions of voting rights, recognizing how important they are to American democracy, but also to, to our nation, to silence? Well, I don't, I don't know that I can, all I can do is speculate because again, that makes no sense. I mean, you know, it all started because of, of the big lie that the former president told. And he has convinced his supporters, or at least they want to embrace the lie. Uh, the fact that a significant number of Republicans still believe the election was flawed uh, goes to where we are in this nation. And elected officials uh, ultimately will cater to what they believe their voters uh, are, are, are saying. So. I really have to believe that it falls on on the shoulders of what uh, the former president was saying and is continuing to say even to this day. Because beyond that, this makes no sense. You know, the fact of the matter is they've made this a partisan issue. Uh, voting is a nonpartisan issue. We're not going out telling people who to vote for. We're just saying make it easy very easy for everyone to be able to vote, uh, to cast their votes. That's what democracy is supposed to be about. And the sad part about it is these same people go all over the world, and we as a nation go all over the world promoting and touting democracy, but yet we have the gall to suppress democracy at home. You know, that's beyond hypocritical. Um, and so I, I'm, I, I, I don't like to be negative, but I will say, that the actions of Republicans are beyond, they're unconscionable, and it's hypocritical uh, that anyone would be involved in standing in the way of a process that makes it possible and easy for any and every uh, legitimate citizen of our nation to be able to vote. You know, you said earlier um, that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you, know, you, you, you liked the president's speech, you wished it had happened, it had happened earlier. Um, would that have made a difference, do you think? Really? I, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't think there's any way to, to say for sure, but I, I just believe this is such a critical issue, even for himself uh, as a president, uh, because we know the elections are coming, midterm elections are coming. And again, conventional wisdom says one thing, and you know, people are chomping at the bit. Uh, the way that some of the lines have been drawn in certain congressional districts uh, in, in our state and many other states uh, could make the map drawing uh, so difficult that it makes it difficult for one party, or at least the Democratic Party, to still maintain its majority. Um, you know, even as it relates to the, the senatorial elections. 
I mean, both of these houses uh, could potentially be in jeopardy. And that's why, again, this issue is so important. Now, no one knows what voters are going to do for sure. We know what polling is saying, but we don't know what voters are going to do when it comes to election day. But the issue is we should make it easy for any and everyone to vote. We should not be making it harder. And that's what these legislators, these Republican legislators, and in fact, you know, Senator Manchin and Senator talk about, you know, bipartisanship. Well, none of these bills that are making it hard to vote in these 19 states have been bipartisan. They've been all Republicans. So, you know, it's interesting you have this, this dual standard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, to say the least. Um, Mr. King, there is a palpable anger uh, at the White House and at the Democratic Party among um, voting rights advocates over the, over the previous lack of, <clears throat> excuse me, previous lack of action. Uh, my friend Charles Blow, columnist at the New York Times in his recent column uh, about the speech said, you know, Biden has been dilly-dallying on getting rid of the filibuster to protect voting rights for essentially his uh, his whole administration until this week. Um, there were Georgia um, voting rights activists who put out a letter saying, one, they're not going to it and calling on the president not to come. Um, they didn't wanna be in the other, the whole point was they didn't wanna be used as props. They've seen this movie before. Did they have a point? Oh yeah, in fact, I, I certainly understand uh, many of us who've been out in the vineyards. In fact, we spoke, uh, we, we continue to talk, all of us, because we need to be working together. And I think there's all, often a time, I, I mean, uh, we spoke with, 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 with Cliff Albright um, and, and others uh, who chose not to show up. And I understand that strategy, I empathize. Uh, but I also believe that there are those who had or needed to be able to hear what the president was saying. You always need to be in dialogue, even if everyone is not in dialogue. I mean, the goal in my judgment is for us all to always be in dialogue with the White House. But if everybody is not able to be, uh, we all are on the same page in terms of getting voting rights done. And so, um, you know, sometimes you you have to challenge even those who are your friends. Um, and we also have to challenge our adversaries. Some would say enemies, I'm gonna say adversaries, because um, you know, I, I think we're at a point where we're almost at a boiling and tipping point. And if we are using inflammatory language, we may not ever be able to, and I'm, I'm now I'm talking about on the opposite side, the Republicans mm -hmm. specifically, uh, we may not ever be able to dialogue. But my dad spoke to every president that was in power when he was in leadership and while he was here. That was President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon. That was President Kennedy and Vice President Humphrey. That was President uh, Johnson. Uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I said President. I meant President uh, Johnson, Vice President Johnson and President Kennedy and President Johnson and Vice President Humphrey. He spoke to each administration and would continue to be doing that. And I think we always have to be doing that. In fact, I attempted to speak to President-elect Trump uh, on the King holiday about these same, ironically, it's the same issues. We were talking about voting mm -hmm. back then and he was interested in fraud. We were talking about voter suppression. 
and yet we were not able to make progress. So we have to keep fighting on these issues. And as I said, we're gonna we're not gonna give up. We're not gonna give out. We're not gonna give in. How concerned are you that 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 palpable anger um, that I talked about that you know will trans will find its way uh, to the ballot box in November in the form of lower lower turnout? Well, what I would say is in the African-American community and maybe in the black and brown community and indigenous, uh, all of these communities have felt left out for a long, long time. And many of these communities in a significant way were able to participate in 2020. Uh, there's no George Floyd legislation moving that we are aware of right this moment. Voting rights are not moving, we are aware of at this point. So. The question is, how do you engage and get people to be involved? Uh, there, there may be indigenous rights that need to be addressed as well. Because I, I don't ever want to leave out those people who were here before any of us, and yet we mistreat them every day. And that is unacceptable. So all of this has to be dealt with. But when people see that their rights are not being protected, preserved, then they have a tendency to say, well, I, you know, I'm just going to not participate because this is not going to change anything. We have to change that mindset, by the way, because every election we must be involved and engaged mm -hmm. at the highest levels that we can be. And it's a tough task when you don't see some victories coming along. In the time that we have left, have to talk about, about your father's legacy, um, Sidney Poitier. Um, we lost him last week at the age of 94. He was close in age to your father, who tomorrow would have turned 93. Um, reflect on the contributions of that generation of civil rights and cultural leaders who fought for racial justice despite all of the obstacles and barriers in their way. So I think that these men and women who stood tall, uh, and and you know whether. Uh, Sidney Poitier uh, worked so closely with my dad indirectly and, and more so directly, Harry Belafonte uh, was a, a very, very close friend of dad and, 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 lay, and mom as well. And yet uh, these individuals made phenomenal contributions throughout their lives um, and, and continue uh, to personify what we as a nation ought to, re they've represented the best of pushing our nation forward, uh, whether it was financial support, whether it was physically being there, as those two gentlemen were, uh, Harry Belafonte, all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Sidney Poitier uh, was there when he was able to be, and but yet always there when it was about opening doors and, and trying to help. So uh, I cannot say enough about those past uh, those, 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 those men and women, women who mm -hmm. were working so tirelessly to make sure that our nation would move forward. Now, we're not where we need to be, but I'm, what I'm excited about is this younger generation that's coming along, including our daughter, who, who is an activist. Oh, I'm getting there. Under I'm getting there. We're, I'm so excited about young, what we see, the, the young activists, the young women who are engaged in the women's movement, the young men and women who are engaged in, uh, you know, gun rights and the environment and so many issues. So my point is, while elected officials who are older may think, 
oh, we'll get through these, this point. These young people are not going to let us stay where we are. We as a nation are going to move forward some way, somehow. Uh, I, I, do, I do have a question about, about your daughter in a moment, but I do want to ask, what would your father make of this time we're in? Because all of the inequities that animated his activism in oratory remain. A lot of the gains he helped achieve have been eroded or eliminated. So I, I think that dad would be most disappointed in our leadership, political leadership, in terms of the way they've chosen to go in relationship to positions that are going backward and not forward. But he'd be greatly supportive of, uh, you know, many things that, that have happened are a result of Black Lives Matter. You know, the media wants to make you think that you know, all these demonstrations are violent. And, and over 89% of the demonstrations have been nonviolent and been positive and, and young people uh, standing up. So he'd be so proud of, of the young people, greatly disappointed in the leadership right now in terms of stalling where our nation should be going. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that none of us could have totally predicted, even though it has been stated by many, is the impact of what a pandemic has on our nation and the fact that people every day are waking up not knowing if they are going to be all right from a, a health and safety perspective. That dynamic creates a lot of different uh, kinds of things in terms of our mental health and everything else. And so mm -hmm. we, we can't, we, maybe we could have predicted that something was going to happen, but for it to keep lingering and people still don't know is something that we can't totally predict how that's going to shake out. But what right. we do know is we've overcome so many things. And so this too, we must overcome. We've got less than three minutes left, but I have to ask you, you've mentioned, you've mentioned her a couple of times now. Yolanda Renee King, your daughter, she told the Post, uh, our paper, she said, quote, my grandmother said every generation has to earn its freedom, but I want my generation to secure freedom for all those that can't come after us. That's some grown-up talk, but she's just 13 years old. So I'm wondering, she never knew her historic grandparents, but I'm wondering from you, how much of your parents do you see in your daughter? My gosh, I, I see... I see a significant amount of them in her. And, you know, I know that when I was 13, I was not, I, I was, I had spoken uh, at a, a rally, but I certainly did not uh, have the, the depth that she has in terms of understanding the issues of our day and wanting to speak out on them and, and to be a leader, not a follower. And so uh, she is, uh, a, a combination of her grandmother and her grandfather. And I, I might add on her, on my wife's side, uh, also her grandparents as well. My, my mother-in-law was the first African-American nurse in her community. And she had to endure patients who were like, we don't want to be treated by a black, a black nurse. We don't want you. And yet she continued to endure and and was decorated in that arena as being one of the most outstanding nurses in our nation. And so I think Yolanda gets it from both sides and, and, and we are so blessed uh, that she's chosen to do it. We don't push her, by the way. We don't tell her, you gotta do this, this legacy is important. 
When she was two or three years old, she was trying to figure out why these people on the streets that are homeless, can we do something to help them? I want to get uh, one day when I'm older, buy a mansion so I can house these people. So this is in her spirit. This is in her DNA. And we're so grateful and thankful and feel so blessed to have a daughter who's interested uh, significantly in social justice. And so um, since you are considerably older than 13 and have been through through these battles, um, what do you say to your daughter and what do you say to young activists uh, out there uh, about their activism and how they should go forward, especially when they're just starting to learn that uh, victories don't come uh, in linear fashion mm -hmm. in 90 seconds, I think we've got left. So, so very quickly, what I always tell Yolanda is you have got to understand there's a long view and there's a short view. There are going to be short-term victories and some are going to take a lot longer. But the most important thing is we never can give up. Uh, and she already has that. She understands. And I say that to young people all the time. What you're doing is changing the world. All the things that you all have done. You got to just look at it in a short period of time. We've made great progress. Although it feels like we haven't made, en we certainly have not made enough. We've got a long way to go. But we're going to continue to make progress if you all continue in that tradition. Martin Luther King III, chair of the Drum Major Institute, thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, and thank you for your leadership every every week on your show and and uh, all that you write about. Thank you. Oh, well, th thank you very much, sir. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.